0: Welcome to the first season of Reclaim Philadelphia's podcast, our political moment, the stories behind the structure. Over the next eight episodes, we will share personal stories throughout the city of Philadelphia that demonstrate how structural oppression is ingrained in our daily lives. I'm one of your hosts, Sergio Josea, along with Kelly Morton and Leah Sorrentino, and we will lead you through stories of people impacted by some of the biggest problems affecting our city. We'll interview organizers fighting against systemic oppression and offer you ways to get involved in our collective liberation. In this episode, you will hear three stories of different Philadelphians trying to survive or thrive in the city. Each of their stories sound like individual struggles, but throughout the episode, we will demonstrate how choice is often a perception. The issues that the storytellers talk about is felt personally, but the root causes affect us all in different ways. You will also hear more about Reclaim Philadelphia's political analysis, and how more often than not, the personal is political and universal. A little bit more about myself. I use he-him pronouns, and I'm a committee person, community organizer, and dog walker living in West Philly. As a Latinx person, like many people of color moving through white spaces, I've often felt the weight of racial oppression in my daily life. Working in pet care in gentrifying areas of West Philly, I've had people question and police my presence when they step off the elevator and they're confronted with a brown person standing in front of them. When my clients forget to turn off their alarm for the day, and the alarm goes off on me when I enter. I worry about my safety and how an encounter with the police would go even if I have permission and keys in hand. It's hard to explain these daily microaggressions to those who don't experience them. People might be able to identify overt racism, like in the Charlottesville march of white supremacists, the Muslim ban, or building a border wall, but have a more difficult time seeing it as a key part of our economic, political, and social structures. In this first story, you'll hear from Akeem and how he has tried to navigate life as a black man living under these structures.
1: My name is Akeem Sims. I'm originally from Norristown, currently a resident of West Philadelphia, AKA Best Philadelphia. A little bit about myself, I enjoy doing accounting work. I have a real estate license, I enjoy reading, spending time with family. I was born in North Carolina and so uh, the district attorney has sent a letter to my grandmother here in Pennsylvania that both of my parents were incarcerated that someone would need to be a guardian for me. They had been involved with theft and drug activity and so that's what led them to being incarcerated. My dad to this day still struggles with addictions. So there was always this place of drug use and incarceration. My dad was incarcerated multiple times throughout my childhood and teenage years, which didn't allow for he and I to have any type of relationship. My mother, after being released, struggled with addiction also but my grandmother was my lifeline so yeah my parents having that involvement in the underworld of drug activity and a life of crime people automatically assumed because my parents engaged in that I was a part of that lifestyle my grandmother position me where I wouldn't be around people like that. It was always present. And I knew drugs were bad. I knew what it had done to my family and I did my best to avoid it. But after being constantly bombarded with inquiries of, do you have drugs for sale? Or I've seen you with this person. I know you're about this lifestyle. It was hard for me to resist. And I um, just took at it, seeing the benefits of selling drugs. I know as a teenager, having your own money and sense of independence is important. That's what I was able to get from selling drugs. But yeah, the cycle of poverty, incarceration, and drug activity or abuse has really been, honestly, overwhelming at times. I had a stint with incarceration at the age of 30. I was arrested with possession of drugs, cocaine that is, with the intent to deliver, and opted to go to a volunteer boot camp. At that boot camp, I really evaluated my life and what direction I was going to head in upon release. While I was incarcerated, my little brother was shot. And the feelings that I had around that of me not being able to play a part in changing his life and the direction that he was headed in, but I believe that he was making decisions based off of how I was living at the time. So it made me really acknowledge my influence on my family and the community at large. So again, while I was incarcerated, I evaluated myself uh, and my lifestyle and decided that I was going to make a conscious effort to never go back. I made a pledge to one of my cellmates, a Hispanic gentleman that I met that was illiterate. I used to read him his mail that he would receive. And through dialogue with him, he inquired as to why I was there and it was like, I've already informed you what my charges are, so you know why I'm here. But I think what he was trying to get me to understand was that he knew just off of that conversation that I was too smart to be incarcerated. And so he asked me, "So I want you to make me a promise. So when you get out, I don't want you to ever come back. And with that, it rang in my head day to day. And so I had to really determine what would be moving enough for me that I wouldn't want to put myself in a position to return. And for me, that was accounting. So even while incarcerated, I began to cut out of the newspaper clippings from the classifieds about what would be required of a person that wanted to apply for those type of roles. And then upon release, went into DPT business school and obtained a business accounting certificate and realized like that was only the beginning of the process. Uh, one of the advisors, and counselors at the school mentioned to me, like, it's going to be hard for you to get into this field and having a felony on your record. And I said to her, it's going to be hard for me to get any position with having a felony record, but I would rather be something that I'm passionate about. After realizing how difficult it was for me to get into the accounting field, after proudly getting my business accounting certificate, I followed through with going to the montgomery county community college i was provided a grant but once those funds were exhausted i had to apply for additional funding and of course on there there's a question specifically about whether or not you have been convicted of a drug felony and i you know had to answer that question yes and so because of that i was denied funding now i could apply for a loan but I already had loans from the business accounting certificate. I'm like, I can't afford to pay them. So what use would it be for me to take out another loan? It halted my efforts in continuing to move towards completing the necessary coursework to get a associates in accounting. It's disheartening. When you're trying to make a better life for yourself, it's been easy for me to go back to the lifestyle that I was living. The transition from jail back to doing the life that I was portraying prior to being incarcerated. How I was affected after release that I really, I really didn't anticipate. I mean, I wasn't thinking about going to school, but... I didn't know anything about accounting, so I had to, yeah, get educated on it. But I didn't think that I would be denied funding simply based off of the fact that I have a conviction. And if I wasn't trying to change myself, like I would expect you to hold it against me, but I'm making efforts. Like I'm really, really diligently working hard and I'm getting support and I just need an opportunity. I think like that's what is being denied is our access to opportunity. It made it really hard to stay committed to that promise that I made and realizing that it really wasn't a promise to my cellmate. It was a promise to myself. Self-doubt definitely was something that was evident because I felt as though I did everything. I've educated myself. I haven't engaged in any type of illegal activities. I really distanced myself from the people and the places that I knew would lead back to me making decisions that would compromise everything that I really had worked so hard for. I really felt belittled and undermined Like People didn't think that I could overcome those decisions. I could overcome all those outside pressures that are really impacting my life. So life looks like now. I have so much upside the various things that I'm involved with has positioned me to recognize myself as an organizer but i think more importantly a leader i don't think that enough people who've been to jail realize how much leadership and control and influence that they have internalized the fact that you can be effective in organizing By utilizing those very things that have oppressed you, they allow me to relate to people in a different way and people want to build
2: with me.
3: My name's Leah Devon-Sarantino. I'm a video and performance artist. I make the kind of artwork that makes people say, why is this art? And I use she, her pronouns. And it took me years to understand how gender oppression impacts me. I've intellectually understood overt gender inequality, like unequal pay or lack of maternity and paternity leave, bathroom discriminations, military bans. But I just couldn't accept that gender oppression impacted my daily life. I wanted to believe that I was being judged on the quality of the person that I was or the performance I was doing as an artist or a worker. I wanted to think that I would always be loved, supported, and believed by my friends and family if something were to happen to me. And in this story, my story, I had to learn in a really lonely way that wanting to be seen as a person doesn't always trump being seen as a woman first. Being an artist is a really important part of my identity. I loved going to art school and being surrounded by other artists. And I always felt lucky that I got to become an adult within artist communities. That I was somehow able to dodge gender inequality or discrimination because I was surrounding myself with liberal people who understood right from wrong. Anytime I was sexualized or mistreated in those spaces, I really believed it was a reflection of my behavior because I was pretty sure that my community knew better than to treat me unequally, that they respected my opinions and my output. I wasn't really defensive around men during undergraduate or graduate school because I considered myself a peer and I didn't feel like I needed to protect my body or my thoughts. So I moved to Minneapolis to go to graduate school and started a work-study job in the school's gallery to help ease the financial burden of moving and art supplies and and all the things that come with art school. And my first day at work, I met a guy that I instantly clicked with. We had similar taste in art, he got all of my Simpsons references, and he was also a transplant, so we could mutually complain about all of the new passive aggressiveness of the Midwest that we were experiencing. And I recognized at the time that our interactions were very flirtatious, but he was seeing someone that he lived with and I was seeing someone, so I never really dwelled too much on the romantic aspect of our friendship. But I was definitely really excited about that friendship and hanging out with him felt like being home again. And after two years, we were still really close. He always got me really thoughtful gifts on my birthday and holidays, we made artwork together, and we had a lot of mutual friends, like including people that I consider family. But that romantic tension of us spending time together also continued to grow and he was still living with someone. So one night, he showed up to my house randomly with a bottle of whiskey, suggesting that we watch Futurama. I thought it was a little odd, because it was kind of late, but I liked him, I liked Futurama, so I thought, you know, what the hell. And inevitably, we did begin to make out, and things kind of kept escalating. But... He was still living with someone, and that made me really uncomfortable, so I asked him to leave. And there was a little pressure to continue, but he eventually left, and I didn't really think much of the interaction. I didn't think too much of it, that is, until it happened again. And it happened again on New Year's Eve. I don't know where his partner was, but he came out with me and some of our mutual friends, and we all ended up back at my house, where everybody else kind of promptly passed out, and I went into my room and he went to the couch and then I was woken up probably about 2 a.m. and he tried to come into my bed where I told him hey you can't come in here because at the time I was seeing someone and he was living with someone and I didn't want that to happen so he went back out on the couch and about an hour later, he came back and tried to say something like he couldn't sleep on the couch because everybody was being loud, and could he just come into my bed? And I had to ask him to leave again. The next morning, we went out to breakfast, and neither of us talked about it. And I just tried to chalk it up to drunkenness and New Year's Eve because we're friends and he cares about me, so it couldn't have been anything more than that. We continued seeing each other less often I was a little bit more weary, but again, he was one of my first friends that I met when I moved to Minneapolis, and he was still close with everybody I knew, and the reality is is I liked him. I liked him as a friend, and I liked even some of the romantic parts, but I didn't like the fact that he was lying to this person that he lived with, so it was a non-starter. A year after that, I got this really amazing artistic break where I was invited to an artist residency in Finland. And it was exciting for me because it meant that I was moving forward in my art career, that people were recognizing my talents. And it was also the first time that I was going to get to travel abroad. The furthest place I'd ever traveled to at that point was Minneapolis. So I got to get a passport and I was going to be gone for an entire month. So I decided to have a going away party, even though I was only going to be gone a A month the party was at my house and I invited all of my closest friends at that party we decided to really turn up in fact I knew that we were all gonna get a little crazy which is why I wanted the party to be at my house that way I didn't have to worry about being in public drunk I knew that I was going to get home safely, I was surrounded by people who loved me, so I didn't have to worry about any X factors, especially because I had to get on a plane in two days. Amongst all the guests was my friend, this guy, and as everybody kept partying, I started to notice that he was no longer drinking. But I didn't really think a lot of it because he drove over to my house, so he probably just wanted to be safe. But then as everybody else continued to get more inebriated, he started to become really touchy and started to grab me in places that were making me really uncomfortable. And he started doing that to my friend as well. Because I was so out of it, I wasn't confronting the situation. But other people at the party started to notice that this was happening. And around 3 a.m., when people started to leave, another friend of mine asked him to leave as well. And he was like, no, I'm going to stay and hang out a little longer. And then he was confronted and the person said, I know what you're trying to do. You need to leave with me right now. And the whole party got really tense. So the guy finally decided to leave and everybody left except me my female friend that was also experiencing this touching and two other male friends, but they were in the backyard. And I was thoroughly freaked out. Everybody got really angry and I started to feel like I did something wrong. And just as I felt a little bit of that tension relieve, there was a knock on my door. The friend that kept touching me came back, but he didn't realize that there were still two other male friends there. And he came back in and pretended that he had lost his cell phone, which then somebody called it and it turned out his cell phone was in his pocket. What had happened is after he left, he actually sat in his car and waited till he thought everybody else was gone and then was coming back for whatever reason. So after he was confronted again by more people at the party, he eventually did leave and I just sobbed. I felt like Because in the past I had shown some type of romantic interest and because in the past we had made out that I invited this kind of behavior and not only did I invite it to myself but I put my friend in a position where she also had to experience this type of harassment. So after the party, I decided I no longer wanted to be friends with this man anymore. I understood that whether I invited it or not, that his behavior made me incredibly uncomfortable, and I didn't want to put anybody in that position, including myself, ever again. And I thought that that night was going to be the hardest part of the experience, but what happened after that was actually much harder. I did tell all of our mutual friends that this happened to me. I made it really clear that this person did not have good intentions when it came to women and that he was not safe to be around. And my closest friends embraced me when I said this and believed me. But they never confronted him. They still invited him to their home. They still hung out with him. They still talked to him. He still artistically celebrated. And in reality, nothing happened to him. But a lot happened to me. I no longer felt comfortable going to art spaces that I knew he was going to be at. I no longer felt comfortable going back to my graduate school where I would see him. I felt really hurt by my friends who couldn't deal with the social pressure of not communicating with somebody who was a part of the art community anymore. And I feel really disappointed in myself that I never went to the school that he still teaches at and works at, where he now has access to lots of other new art students who are just moving to Minneapolis, who are lonely, who are looking for a fun, funny, interesting friend. I had a really hard time dealing with the disappointment of how my community responded to this experience, but I can say that it has made it easier for me to confront these situations moving forward, and it has made it easier for me to understand that I am not always going to be judged as an individual. I can also now accept that there was no action that I did That warranted me feeling unsafe in my home. I can accept that I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't ask to be treated this way, even if I expressed interest at another time. And even though it's still hard, I can also accept that being an ally to women is still a lot harder than it sounds.
2: My name is Kelly Morton, I'm an organizer with Reclaim Philadelphia, I use she-her pronouns. Growing up in Philly in a working class family, I constantly felt the anxiety of financial insecurity through my parents' concerns about paying bills and not being consumed by debt. But it always seemed like a personal issue, and one that was shameful to talk about. As an adult, I went over 8 years without health care and believed that that was a choice I made rather than one I was forced into by my economic circumstances. Everyone I knew believed that if we worked hard, we could have financial security, yet everyone I knew did work hard and lives in constant anxiety about money. In our next story, Paul shows how even as a professional in his field, that working hard isn't always enough to achieve stability.
4: I was raised in a middle class family. We were more like working class, I think, especially my parents. My mother had gone to secretarial school in the late 50s in New York. It was very like Peggy Olsen on Mad Men. And my father came from a very working class background. He went to art school in New York and he also uh, worked for the New York public school system as a janitor. He had some opportunities to do like commercial art, but you know, it was hard for him to make a living. And when he met my mother, he had to have, like, a a steady job, and that's when he went to work for the school system as a janitor. And so my parents were married in 1961, and I was born in 1969. I was the fourth of their six kids, and I was the first one born in Philadelphia. You know, my parents were aspirational people. They believed in the American dream because in some ways it worked for them, and it was just enough for us to sort of believe that if you just work hard— anything's possible. I actually started working when I was 14. I got a job at a little corner store, this is so Philly, at 22nd and Mount Vernon, it was called Chubby's. I was fully indoctrinated in this idea that if you just work hard, good things will come to you. Then after that job at 14 or 15, I graduated to working at like a supermarket, a small supermarket in the neighborhood, bagging groceries. So I bagged groceries to put myself through college. The other thing I had to do was figure out what I wanted to go to college for, which as a teenager, I was really directionless. And the only classes I was really good at were English and History. Those were the only ones I really liked. Well, my parents told me I couldn't be an English major because you can't get a job. So it became a, a communications degree. I liked that because it would be playing with cameras. I wanted to learn TV production. So I applied for at a variety of different schools. But because I lived in Philly, I wanted to go away and found a school in Western Pennsylvania called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. You know, it's a state school. So I applied to IUP and I started there in the fall of 1987. While I was in college, I really loved this TV production world that I was getting into as a communications major. And I volunteered at that TV station on campus. And by the time I was in my senior year, I was the station manager of that TV station. It was when I blossomed, really, in college. The other side of this whole story is that I was a gay kid who grew up in this Irish Catholic family. In college, I realized I couldn't hide that anymore. I realized I couldn't be a closeted person. You know, I was a gay kid in 1990, 1989, coming out as a kid from Philly, but in a college in the middle of rural Pennsylvania. So there were a lot of resources for me. I went down to part-time status. I was only taking two classes because the stress of all this was too much for me. Because I went down to part-time status, I lost my student loan. So I didn't have funding for that anymore. And I also like had a pay them back some of it almost immediately and I didn't realize that when I went to part-time status it was something that no one ever explained to me and when I graduated I did have immediate student loan debt and I couldn't get a job it was 1992 at that point and the country was in a recession and I came to Philadelphia after graduating Philadelphia at that time I think was like the fourth largest media market Um, it's not a place where you break into the business so nobody would really hire me so I had to go back to bagging groceries until I found out about a job lead at CNN in Atlanta, and within, I think, two weeks, I was flying down to Atlanta to work at CNN. I got a lucky break, and I took it, and I took a huge chance moving to Atlanta like that, and it gave me a chance to show people how talented I was. I stayed at CNN for four and a half years. It was a really exciting place to work. And then from there, I finally got the position that I really wanted. I was a video editor. I am a Philly guy at heart. And so I wanted to come back and I wanted to get a job here in Philadelphia. So I got a job at a station here in Philadelphia, the CBS affiliate. It wasn't a full-time position at first it was what they call per diem which means basically you're put on the schedule for so many hours a week but you don't get benefits and you know you never really know how many hours you're gonna get so after three years of being a per diem not having those benefits i was finally hired there was finally an opening at channel three and i was a full-time video editor so i would edit video for like the five o'clock and six p.m newscast. And then I would also edit specials. So if you were watching like CSI or something, you might see a commercial that would have a promo promoting a story that I had edited. Things like that were happening for me. And some of these pieces were actually getting nominated for Emmys. I really felt like I had arrived. Like I really felt like things were stable for me. And parallel to all this, I had met a lovely man, Sean Curry, my husband, and it's been 17 years and I still love that man so much. The combination of meeting a wonderful man and having what seemed like career success in my mid-30s made me feel like, okay, I've, I've finally done it. i finally achieved what everyone says you're supposed to achieve, this American dream thing. Except there's one thing missing. We were renting. We already considered ourselves married, but this was still almost a full decade before marriage equality came. So in 2006, we bought a house, and that really felt like the icing on the cake. Like, that really felt like this completes the picture. I have the great job, I have a wonderful husband. And we own a house together and I'm a successful member of the middle class, except we bought that house in 2006, which was when the real estate bubble burst. I think while we were like signing the papers, (laughs) because within a month or two, uh, we checked, you know, the value of our house and it was depreciated by about $40,000. What I remember most about that period is that immediately after we bought the house and moved in, we realized that we were house poor. All of our money was going into the house and any disposable income was just completely gone now. And that's when we really were like, this is hard to own a house to maintain it and to pay all the bills every month, but we did it. We cut back where we had to cut back and things seemed okay if a little uncertain. By 2008, we were now entering the economic crisis when the banks were failing and the economy was really tanking. Suddenly, this success I had at work seemed a lot less certain because there were already rumors that television industry was going to take a big hit. 2008 was the first time I walked into a job and heard that they were doing layoffs. That was a new experience for me. After, I don't know, five or six rounds, and by this point, I saw the writing on the wall because so many people were getting laid off, but I was in panic mode, and... It was just like, you know, every other time, it was like a replay. You walk in, everybody has the look on their face, and then someone pulls you inside since they're laying people off today. And I remember hearing that. I remember who told me. I remember leaving his edit booth. It was a fellow editor going to my edit room, sitting down in the chair to start work for the day. And the phone rang, and it was human resources. And I know. Of course I know. It was a very long walk to human resources, and I remember my knees shaking. I remember that meeting. I remember my voice shaking as they told me that I was being laid off after working there for over 12 years, but it was just so traumatic. I remember being outside, calling Sean, who, of course, we still weren't married then, and telling him that I got laid off, and I remember I had to repeat myself three times because I don't think he understood me. I think I was crying. I was out of work for 18 months, and my husband paid the mortgage every month on that house until he couldn't. We we ran out of money, ran out of people to ask for money. So we lost our house in the foreclosure crisis. Our house wasn't actually foreclosed upon. It was facing foreclosure because we had to stop paying our mortgage. But we were able to sell it in a short sale, which is when you sell it for less than the value of the mortgage. And typically when that happens, you have to pay back that difference. But because there was a program in place uh, as part of TARP, this program where homeowners facing foreclosure could sell their house in short sales and walk away from it debt-free. So we took advantage of that. But it was a way for us to sort of walk out of there with our heads held high. We weren't being evicted or anything like that. We were being responsible. We were being proactive. But it hurt more than anything in my life, I think losing that house that was our home for six years and I had worked so hard my whole life bagging groceries at 14 excelling vocationally in college becoming the station manager at that TV station working for CNN working for Channel 3 putting up with all those crazy personalities and TV news all that effort I put in and even excelled at everything I had to show for it evaporated within two years I lost my job I lost my health insurance and I lost my house all I did was work my whole life so If I needed to work harder, I don't know at what point I could have worked harder. Even after I went through that experience, I thought it was my fault. It wasn't until years later when I was doing clinical organizing, I realized through the work I was doing that it's a thing that happened to me. It's not a thing that I did.
2: Like all of us, each of the people in the stories experienced oppression but didn't see it because their point of view was influenced by the American dream, which tells us that there's a level playing field, we all have equal opportunities, that our successes or failures are defined by our personal choices, and we just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is what we at Reclaim Philadelphia don't accept. If you look at the foundation of our country, it was created by landowning white men who got their land through colonizing extracting wealth from indigenous people. Their definition of all men are created equal was limited to people with their privilege and background. Starting from this foundation, inclusivity has been fought for through a lot of civil rights movements trying to expand that foundation to include others and gain rights. Even through all that fighting, we're still at such a place of inequality that continues to be held up by the dominant narratives of the times. The foundation as we know it cannot be fixed, but has to be dismantled. Many of us believe that racism, sexism, and classism are running rampant in a broken system. The narrative that we're offering in this series is that the system is not broken. It's operating as it was created to, to benefit the privileged at the expense of the rest of us. When we experience life buying into the American Dream, we take personal responsibility for everything that happens to us we don't look to others to help us, and we don't see the systems that are working against us. We don't see that those systems are political. When we begin to look at those systems as beginning from a place of huge inequality at the beginning of our country, we can see that they work together. Our economic system requires winners and losers, and in a government and economic system that began based on slavery and didn't recognize women, the poor, people of color, LGBTQ people, the majority of us will always be the losers in this system. When we say that the personal is universal and political, this is what we mean. At their roots, all of our personal struggles are tied to the struggles of others. The issues that we're going to be looking at in this series cannot be solved by any one individual. They require collective action by people across the city who see these struggles as personal, political, and universal. With the city elections approaching this first season of our political moment, we will explore the issues facing Philadelphia housing, education, mass incarceration, poverty, but our approach is unique because we're going to begin by pointing out the systems involved and recognizing that they developed over centuries of oppression. From there, we can see how the people who were never intended to be supported by our systems continue to be hurt by them. In each episode, we'll be inviting you to get involved in collective action. We'd also like to hear your experiences with dominant narrative and structural oppression. There are two posts on our blog right now, at reclaimphiladelphia.org. Join the conversation and share your thoughts by commenting.
3: Thanks for listening to the first episode of Our Political Moment. This podcast is produced by Reclaim Philadelphia. Our team includes Sergio Acea, Kelly Morton, and Leah Sarantino. And a special thanks to this episode's storytellers, Akeem Sims and Paul Fitzgerald. Shout out to Julia Rondo for helping organize our theme music for this episode, provided by local Philadelphia groups Sheer Mag, Shamir, Preen, and Thin Lips. You can find their full tracks on our website at reclaimphiladelphia.org.